0: This is the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. How about my parents with a foresight have given me that middle name? Comes in handy sometimes. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He'll come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and of life everlasting. Amen. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. Glad to be with you today. If you haven't gathered by now, my name is Jonathan. I get to be the lead follower at missionchurchonline.com and I get to curate uh, a nonprofit which works with some great people down in Haiti called LQVE and I do that with my son Shay and I also write I've got some books out on Amazon got a new one coming out and currently I'm doing this particular podcast and glad to be doing it if you have liked what you've heard so far I dare you to leave some positive reviews if you don't like it no worries let's pretend I didn't ask so this season, season uno of this podcast, has been dedicated to trying to answer the question, essentially, how it is that I've been arriving at the places I've been arriving at philosophically and theologically and scripturally, emotionally, psychologically, all these kinds of things with respect to how I'm embracing and viewing LGBTQ plus human beings, in particular, with the idea that I came from a pretty conservative, traditional, you know, American evangelical, I would even go to, go as far as to say quasi-fundamental, and in my case, holiness background. So how it was, I moved from there to here. Now, I'd like to think I was never really anti-gay or militant and all this, but the truth is I played a part in that whole movement and so the season of the podcast has been dedicated to attempting to try to help people connect the dots because for some people it's quite unbelievable that i would actually suggest not just that god loves everyone i think most christians you know recognize that but not only that but also that the church does not need to do anything different to welcome lgbtq plus human beings into their fold and in fact, if we believe that we're all sinners, we should be treating them the same as everyone else. Of course, I go even further in some of these episodes, and specifically you can learn more about that probably in episode number three. I go further by saying, I think we're, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice by only categorizing ourselves as sinners. I think there's a lot of other things that are going on. And I'm really not an original sin guy. I'm really an original blessing and goodness and beauty guy. So my journey has been really a journey of a movement away from the constant sin-infused and hell-bent, like heavy burden of religion and more into probably what is more like an Eastern tradition, which is about beauty and goodness and love and grace. I actually think those things are much stronger. And deeper and substantive. Which leads us to set up today's topic. So today I want to talk about everyone's favorite subject. That's right, we're talking about hell. (laughs) Thank you for that tepid reception. Today's topic is brought to you by the words exasperation and compassion. I'm afraid sometimes I slip into exasperation, which is pretty hilarious when you think about it, because I'm going to be talking about love, and in my zeal to talk about love, sometimes I can get so exasperated by those who I don't think are acting in loving ways that I can begin to act in unloving ways. So how ironic is it that I would introduce anti-love exasperation and subvert the whole thing I'm trying to do. So, so again, this thing as well as all the other podcasts and for that matter, any other time that I speak or write, really, I'm just giving you evidence of, of the fact that I'm a hypocrite myself and I'm in need of more grace than anyone else. So yes, it's brought to you by exasperation, but hopefully also compassion all the way through because I think we are sorely lacking in compassion, but again, Uh, It starts with me, and so I want to have it as I speak about this, because I think that's where this subject matter is going to in the end, anyhow. And I've talked about this subject a lot, in particular over the last couple years. I think I've had more conversations with people about hell the last couple of years than I have the whole rest of my life put together Which is interesting. I haven't really wanted to have conversations about hell. I actually think it's a really boring subject, and I don't think it has that much power. But since I've been talking about love, they keep talking about hell. So I keep finding myself in dialogue with the religious people about hell. I think that says something. The more I talk about love, the more the religious people want to talk about hell. But I can't really blame them. I feel like the American evangelical Christian Protestant person has been hijacked a bit by their fear-based theology, and for them, hell is the deepest thing. It is the deepest thing, but I want to tell you right up front that hell isn't the deepest thing. Love is. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to all those who've gone before us who maybe taught us something different. I'm just asking you to consider that American evangelicalism is built on the idea of staying out of hell. And there's been some good things about that. I mean, in a moral, uh, behavioral sense, we certainly want to follow specific rules at times. Because if we don't, yes, there are consequences but that's an entirely different thing than saying that God's holiness requires that he be angry and wrathful and punish us and send us to an eternal place of fire. By the way, all those previous things I just mentioned are things I'm going to talk about on this episode of the podcast. I happen to think that the intensity of those things I just mentioned paired up with our own insecurity and shame and our unwillingness to see the Bible as something more than a rule book have led us to obsess on fear, rules, boundaries, and yes, hell. Now those things I just mentioned, punishment and wrath and holiness and anger and fire, they're all in the Bible. And there's certainly a way to read the Bible to come to the conclusion that God is angry. I just happen to think it's the wrong way to read the Bible. I think it's the unhealthy way to read the Bible. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. And I think there's something deeper than our obsession with hell. There's a deeper story, and that story is love. I find it particularly ironic that for all of our good intentions of wanting to warn people about hell and to evangelize them to the degree that we can save them from hell, it's just ironic. It's amazing to consider that our Americanized Christianity has created its own type of hell as well. For it's a hell of a place to find a church prejudging, or condemning, or highlighting some sins over others, or operating out of fear, which is really what I think this is all about. So it's not a stretch to say that a well-run religious system is attempting to pull people out of one type of hell, but in doing so is unwittingly exposing those people, and themselves, to another type of hell. It's the type of hell that tells us that fear is the ultimate motivator. It's the type of hell that tells us to build all of our theology on a God who was willing to torture his children forever. Never mind that if a human did that, we'd call child protection services immediately. Well, speaking of child protection services, think about what penal substitutionary atonement tells us. It tells us that God had to kill his own son in order to forgive us. None of this is particularly healthy, people. To build our theology... On that kind of need for sacrifice, blood payment, fear of punishment, and hell, all of that is a type of hell. To suggest that others are sinful to the degree that we preach at them, and then create sin hierarchies in the church to determine who gets to heaven and who doesn't, well, it's a type of hell. And so I think that we, in many cases, have exchanged one type of hell for another. And this brings a whole new take on out of the frying pan and into the fire. Okay, so for my view of hell to be put into alignment with love, I recognized first I had to rehabilitate my view of the Bible itself. And so ultimately I decided, no, it's not a rule book. It's not a text written to let us know who gets in and who gets out, who gets to teach, who doesn't, who has more power, who doesn't have more power. Rather, it's a bunch of stories written by different people as a way to figure out who they are and who their God is. And I think in particular, it was written in a context often of being oppressed by other people. So it's not just trying to figure out who they are and who God is. It's trying to figure all that out in the context of who other people are telling them that they are and who other nations are saying that their God is. It's very interesting to read it that way. I believe the Bible is inspired, but what it's inspired to do is point us to Jesus, the one who really does have compassion. Jesus is the one who cares about the people who are lost, who are marginalized, who are excommunicated, who are scapegoated. Contrast that to how we respond to those kinds of people. I mean, good grief, we create those kinds of people. We send them away. If you're different, if you're not like us, if you're not a part of the tribe, then you have to leave. We don't even care where you go. Like We literally don't care. We just want to get rid of you. This is a definition of what hell is. Hell is the place where we send people that we don't want to deal with, interact with, or live with. Well, hell's the very place that Jesus goes. It's amazing. If Jesus goes to hell or goes to death, then that means hell or death has been redeemed. If God's been there, love's got a plan. Love is deeper than hell. Our earliest creeds actually taught us to believe this. This is what the Apostles' Creed is. Do you remember that spot where we say uh, we believe that he's died and he's descended into death? And so to die is to have an encounter with God. And if God is there, anything is possible. So for me, I had to decide what I thought about the Bible, what its purpose was. And ultimately, I decided it wasn't just a rule book, but it was something that was leading me to truth, truth in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was the one who hung out with the oppressed and the excluded and the marginalized and the scapegoated and the broken. I mean, he hung out with the people on the periphery, on the edges, which I found really fascinating because, again, that's a definition of a type of hell. That's where Jesus is. And if Jesus is doing that, that's what we should be doing as well. And so this whole approach led me to think more about love and to redefine what I think love is. It's not a punishment thing, sending people there, but it's actually a with thing, a solidarity thing. This is tough for the religious crowd. I get it. I understand. I was there once too. And so they don't want to go down without a fight. Now, Some religious people at this point will just disassociate themselves from you. Others, who have a bit of intellectual honesty, will say, Okay, yeah, I get it. It's about love. But then they'll add something to the end of love. They'll add the conjunction, but. So it goes something like this. Yeah, it's about love, but... dot dot dot, And then they'll fill in the phrase with one of the four following things. But don't forget about holiness. Or it's love, but justice. Or they might say, it's love, but God is wrathful. And then sometimes they may throw in the fire thing. They'll say something like, yes, God is love, but he is a consuming fire. As if any of those things are in competition with God being love. Okay, so let's talk about these four things. I know that you want to. Uh, let's talk about holiness. Holiness. I've heard about holiness a lot in my background, and it was typically communicated to me that holiness meant that God was separate, that he was pure and clean, and therefore, because I was separate, I was impure and unclean. And in order for me to have a relationship with him, I would have to do something. I mean, I couldn't just expect God to love me. I'd have to get perfected so that I could match up with his perfection. And I want to say that I do believe holiness is a type of separateness, that God is a different essence than we are, for sure. He has to be, or she has to be, or it has to be, whatever it is. But I don't think God is separate from us relationally. No, I think God is interested in our lives deeply, just as much or more than I'm interested in my own kids' lives. And so, I'd say that the perfection of God is his willingness to live with our imperfection. That line isn't original with me. I forget who to attribute it to. But that's helped me. God's perfection is his willingness to live with our imperfection. So his holiness doesn't fight his love. They're not in competition. No. God is love. Well, let's see. What's the next one? God is love, but don't forget God is just. God must be a God of justice. And I actually agree with this on one level. I think the problem is our sense of justice has been co-opted by our violent, retributive culture that we live in to the degree that we think justice is just punishment. Let's just send people away. But the biblical idea of justice isn't just about separation and punishment and sending people away. The biblical idea of justice always has reconciliation in mind. And yes, there is scriptural evidence. If you want to pull some scriptures out of context, that would suggest that God is just in to punishment for the sake of punishment. But also, I would say there's scriptural evidence that God wants to restore relationship. And in the end, you get to decide which one you believe. What I've decided is that it's not as if his justice keeps him from love. They're not in conflict with each other. No, God is love. Well, then people will talk about wrath. They'll say, well, God is loving, but don't forget about his wrath. And it is true there is wrath language in the Bible. Maybe we should look at a classic piece of wrath scripture in Romans chapter 1. Paul says there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. And then on down a few verses, he says, Therefore, God gave them up to their desires. What I think Paul is attempting to say is that wrath reveals itself in God giving people over to their misguided desires. In other words, wrath is God's consent on our self-destructive choices. It turns out we're punished more by our sins than we are for our sins. It's not a wrath that overwhelms his love. I don't believe so. They're not in competition, no. God is love. Well, this is so much fun. Let's just keep on going. What about the consuming fire language that's in the Bible? Because it's in there. And this one tripped me up for a little while. I had to do some digging and some reading and some thinking. I remember the day that I read Isaiah thirty-three fourteen 14 and 15, though. Verse 14 presents a question. Verse 15 offers up the answer. And it kind of just blew my mind. Here's what it says in verse 14. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us could dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? And now the answer. Listen to this. You want to know who can dwell in the consuming fire and the everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks what is right. Who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hands from accepting bribes. Who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. That's the person in the fire. It's the good person. It's not the bad person. What's going on with this consuming fire? I mean, what is it consuming? Obviously not the person. And then I begin to think about the burning bush with Moses. Or when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the narrator says that there was a consuming fire around the mountain. Or in Second Chronicles, where the temple is described as having is described as having a consuming fire, or for that matter, Pentecost with tongues of fire over each person's head. In each of these cases, the fire described as a consuming fire was actually not consuming everything. Bushes still remained, tabernacles still remained, mountains, people. It appears that what the fire is consuming is sin, is misguided desires, is dysfunction. I don't think this is a description of God's fire burning us literally. I think this is metaphorical. Then I read a verse like Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. I love this verse. I meditate on this verse almost every morning. The writer says that love burns like fire, the brightest kind of flame. So the fire is metaphorical of, yes, once again, God's love. They're not in competition with each other. So, to recap, my view of the Bible had to be rehabilitated, to be read not as a rule book, but something that points to Jesus. Jesus is the one who actually will go anywhere, including hell, to be with us. And then I had to reframe what I thought about holiness and wrath and judgment and punishment and justice and fire. I mean, none of this happened overnight. This took a few years to unwind And then to rewind back in a better, healthier way. (laughs) I know it's a lot of stuff. This has been heavy. We should probably take a moment to recharge and regroup. Get some happy vibes in here. All this talk about hell. Sheesh. Okay, I actually think I feel a little bit better now. Well, what I've already talked about helped shift about 90% of my thinking with respect to what I thought about hell. But then I had to look at some of the individual scripture passages. Now, I'm not going to go through all the passages. Gosh, that just sounds like a boring episode, doesn't it? Hey, listen to that one where the guy goes and reads all the passages about hell in the Bible. Now, I'll leave that fun stuff to you. Suffice it to say, though, that hell language is in the Bible, for sure. Well, kind of. The problem is, what we think of when the word hell is used and what the listeners in the ancient Near East thought of when the word hell was used are two different things. The Greek is Hades. The Hebrew is Sheol. These are two pretty nondescript, nonspecific terms used to talk about the afterlife in other places like in the new testament jesus talks about hell but he's often talking about a place called gehenna which is the valley outside of jerusalem where all the trash was taken and was burned so hades and sheol and gehenna these are all terms that conjured up images in the listeners of the ancient near east in their mind that would be different than the images conjured up in our mind Our minds have been informed by Dante or Milton or maybe a preacher like Jonathan Edwards preaching a sermon like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That wasn't the case with the listeners in Jesus's day necessarily. So even when people say, yeah, but Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. Like this is true, but it's a little bit misleading because no one else really talked about hell that much. And when Jesus does talk about it, he's talking about Gehenna. He's also sometimes talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70 by the Romans. He's certainly not talking about the hell you and I are picturing, this retributive, angry, uh, eternal flesh-torturing hell that you and I often imagine. And I need to get nerdy here for a second. Gosh, I wish I was better at being nerdy, but I I gotta work at it. I don't want to, but this subject matter really compels me to do this, so... The translations and the paraphrases that you and I read, they mean a lot with this subject matter. For example, take a translation like David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. In the story that Jesus told about the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, do you remember that story? Hart ends that story by saying, Amen, I tell you insomuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, neither did you do it to me, neither did you do it to me. And these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. Now compare that with a normal NIV translation, which says, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. One says the chastening of the age, the other says eternal punishment. Now there is a world of difference as to how these two scriptures sound and feel to us. Hart goes on to say that the word he translates as chastening originally meant pruning or confinement or being held in check. Either way, this is a far cry from the angry eternal retributive punishment that you and I think of when we read the phrase eternal punishment in the NIV. It's interesting because the only other use of this noun is in 1 John 4.18, where it refers not to retributive punishment, but it's attached to the idea of fear. In fact, I love this verse. Because 1 John 4.18 makes it pretty clear that if we're experiencing fear, it's possible we haven't had an encounter with love. In other words, the very people who want me to preach more about fear are potentially the people who have never experienced love in the first place. Those are the wrong people I need to be listening to. That's amazing. Anyhow, the bigger point is translations and paraphrases and the language here really matters. So when you pull up a particular verse that seems to lead you to think that the writer is talking about some eternal fire, torture, punishment, just do a little bit of digging. Just do a little bit of asking. Figure out who the translators are and where it came from. Look at the original language. And we're still talking about what Jesus has to say about death and hell and the afterlife here. Here's really the biggest picture of it all. Even when Jesus does speak of an afterlife, it's always connected with this life. Again, let me reference the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, because it's a verse, it's a passage that a lot of people turn to when they want to reference hell. Jesus is making the point that the wicked will be condemned, but the question begs to be asked who are the wicked? Well, it's not the people who haven't prayed a prayer and to accept Jesus into their hearts so that they won't go to hell when they die. No, you can't find that kind of language in the New Testament. The wicked, according to Jesus, are those not visiting the sick, the poor, or the imprisoned. So to focus on the sheep-goat story about this whole afterlife place of torment is to miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, avoid hell now by treating the poor and the prisoner well. And those who avoid hell now will avoid hell later. Jesus is giving us an alternative way to live. He's introducing us to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of love, which tells us that if we see all people with dignity and respect and we treat them, even those who have been excluded and scapegoated and are being punished by whatever system is punishing them, if we see all people with love and reach out to them, we'll become fully human and we'll be inviting the kingdom of heaven into our life now, which will only extend later into eternity. By the way, eternity doesn't start when you die. Eternity's happening right now. We're already in eternity. Well, eventually I took all this kind of thinking and more into my thought life because <laughs> that's what you do with your thinking. You take it into your thought life. And I decided that My idea of hell, the one that had been told me by the religious system and by my culture, that it was incompatible with who Jesus was. I mean, Jesus was the one hanging out with the people that the religious powers were all too happy to send to hell. Jesus was also the one who said he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. By the way, he's also the one that said that we're supposed to love our enemies how would God expect us to love our enemies if, in the end, He got to burn His enemies? So what do I believe about the afterlife? Well, I'm glad I'm glad you asked. Thanks for asking. Um, first of all, I believe God is there just like he's here. So to experience God is to experience, at the very least, the possibility of life. And John the Revelator says, The gates of the New Jerusalem, they'll never be shut. They're never going to shut. And that's congruent with my idea of God. It's never too late with God. Furthermore, I can't imagine torturing my kid for even one second. In fact, if you and I knew that one of my children was heading to hell, and you gave me the opportunity, like you said, Hey, Jonathan, would you trade places with Quincy, Shea, or Evan if you knew they were going to hell? I would in a heartbeat say, absolutely. Are you kidding me? There's no way I would send them there. If that's the kind of love an earthly parent has, how much more so our heavenly parent? I do think separation in the end, whatever the end is, is a possibility. Partly because of my idea about love. I think love demands a response. Love invites us to respond. Otherwise, it would just be love compelling itself, forcing itself, coercing itself on us. And that's incongruent with my idea of love. So I do think that in the end, separation is a possibility. And you can call that hell if you want. I just don't think it'll be a punishment that God authors or initiates. Rather, I think it'll be more of a consequential punishment. It's the kind of punishment that we'll wind up choosing just as we choose it now, we'll choose it then, and a la C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce. I speculate it'll be a series of choices that takes us further and further away from the light and the expansiveness of love and further and further into the darkness and the smallness of all that's anti-love. I don't think life is a giant quiz, and like if you pass it, then you're going to get proper afterlife placement. And if you fail the quiz, well, then you go to hell. I think life is a gift from God. And it's a gift that's best honored and respected when one lives with a disposition toward all people that they're worthy of dignity and esteem and love. To live like Jesus He showed us how to be human. He said to be fully human, you should focus on the powerless and not on amassing power. And the moment you live outside of that worldview, well, you've self-selected out of the kingdom of God, which is to say you've entered into a type of hell. And if you're living for a type of hell now, you'll probably live for a type of hell then. Look, I know why some people are so mad at me for saying all these things. And I also know it really has nothing to do with me, which helps me forgive them. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with their hell-bent theology. They think hell is the deepest thing. And so anyone that doesn't measure up, well, they have to send them there. Their theology forces them to. And within the larger context of all the episodes of this podcast, LGBTQ+, well, it's just one more person that they have to send away. But Jesus came to save us from all of that. Because hell isn't the deepest thing, and even if it was, Jesus has already been there. Now love is the deepest thing. After by Wendell Berry. The brief cataclysm of cheap oil and coal has long passed, along with the global economy, the global village, the hordes that go everywhere and live nowhere. After the long relearning, the long suffering, the homecoming that must follow, maybe there'll be a new world of native communities again. Plants, animals, humans, soil, stones, stories, songs, all belonging to such small, once known and forgotten, officially unknown and exploited. Beautiful places such as this, where despite all we have done wrong, the golden light of October falls through the turning leaves.